Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 140. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this episode on January 24th, 2024, in Austin, Texas. We are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without intentional presentism. The year is 1648. In the populous Northern Hemisphere, a generation of cataclysm is coming to an end. In China, the Ming Dynasty enters its final collapse and a lot of people die. Civil war had been raging in England and Scotland for six years, and the turmoil there would continue with ups and downs for another 20 years. The Thirty Years' War in Europe finally concludes with continent-wide exhaustion at the Treaty of Westphalia. Between the violence and the destruction of farms and other infrastructure, Europe had declined in population between 15 and 30 percent in those awful 30 years. The world had been very cold. The so-called Little Ice Age had knocked down global temperatures between 1 and 2 degrees Celsius, causing, among other things, widespread crop failures. Some scholars argue that 1648 was the last year in which the global population of human beings actually declined, an astonishing claim considering the calamitous 20th century. In many respects, therefore, the East Coast of North America was a pretty good place to be, especially if you were European. The Virginians had won the last Anglo-Powhatan War in 1646. Immigration into New England had come to a screeching halt. But the thousands who'd come during the Puritan Great Migration were prosperous and healthy and given to immense families. Maryland was rebuilding quickly after the plundering time. Keefe's War had concluded with a peace of sorts with the local tribes. Even along the Delaware River, such confrontations as they were now mostly between the Dutch and the Swedes, were virtually bloodless. Hardworking Swedish and Finnish farmers had cleared fields and were feeding themselves without help from the mother country. They particularly excelled at animal husbandry, growing their herds of cattle and especially pigs. They did this on land also claimed by the Netherlands and England, not to mention the Lenape. At the end of 1647, Peter Stuyvesant had arrived to take over the director generalship of New Netherland on behalf of the Dutch West India Company. He would be the last and most consequential leader of the Dutch in North America. One of his accomplishments would be to eliminate Swedish control of the Delaware River, the main story of this episode. On the small chance you've not already done so, you would do well to listen to the last episode. New Sweden Part 2, The Tough Guys Arrive. The Tough Guys were Stuyvesant and Johann Prince. In the spring of 1648, Andres Hutta, the commander of the remaining Dutch installation on the east bank of the Delaware, Fort Nassau, built a blockhouse he called Fort Beaver's Reed, just east of a bend in the Schuylkill River in central Philadelphia. The Swedish governor, Johan Big Belly Prince, had been cutting trees there, and the Dutch assumed he was trying to gain a position closer to furs coming down from Susquehanna country. Fort Beaver's Reed would interdict the Swedes, or more accurately, would have. 
Mons Kling, one of Prince's lieutenants, arrived at the Dutch blockhouse with 25 armed men. He didn't attack the Dutch, but ordered his men to cut down all the trees nearest their building. The Swedes then built their own blockhouse right next to the Dutch, between the so-called Fort Beaver's Reed and the Schuylkill, obscuring the Dutch view of the river. The Dutch, who cared about their view of the water as much as any modern American condo dweller, protested, showing up at Prince's house to lodge their complaint. He kept them out in the rain for an hour, then let them in to make their case. They left in a hurry when Prince hefted his 400 pounds and nonchalantly removed a gun racked on the wall. The episode at Beaver's Reed was but one of several such mostly peaceful confrontations in the next three years. There would be no loss of life, but the Dutch and the Swedes would maneuver for position, sort of a chess match in which the pieces were blockhouses. That Prince was able to play this game and build up his colony's economy was impressive, insofar as he had not at this point heard from Sweden in some years. In the spring of 1649, Sweden had settled its war with Denmark and Queen Christina and her council again looked to North America. They prepared a substantial resupply via a ship named Katten, meaning the cat in our mother tongue. The head of the expedition was Commandant Hans Amundsen, and her captain had one of the most spectacular names in the early history of the Americans, Cornelius Lucifer. If there are Swedish listeners out there, I'd love to hear how it came to pass that Lucifer was a surname in that land of God-fearing Lutherans. Anyway, Lucifer the Lutheran would sail Catton into catastrophe. Catton was well supplied with arms, ammo, food, and a bunch of new colonists, mostly Finns. She sailed from Guttenberg on the 3rd of July, 1649, and reached Anguilla on the 20th of August. There, Catton took on some water, but needed more supplies, proceeded to St. Kitts, and eventually St. Martin, where she loaded salt. On August 25th, she set sail for the Delaware. Early on the morning of August 26th, Catton hit a rock near an island about 14 miles off the coast of Puerto Rico, then a Spanish possession, as it had been for 150 years and would remain for almost 250 years more. Now let's go to the account from Carl Sprinkhorn's History of the Colony of New Sweden, translated in 1883. Brace yourselves. Quote, After she had been lightened of ballast, water, etc., she was brought to shore, fortunately without loss of life. The victuals and great part of the stores of the ship were carried to the beach, and after some repairs she was ready to continue her journey. The shipwrecked mariners, needing water, besought assistance of the inhabitants, who happened to be Spaniards, and who sent them water, but observing their desperate situation, plundered them of what they had carried ashore and took them on boats as prisoners to Puerto Rico, where Amundsen was brought before the governor, Don Fernando de la Riva. The latter, after questioning him as to his intentions, from whence he came and whither he was going, made excuses for the violence towards his company, saying this would not have occurred had he been present. Amundsen considered they would have to answer for behaving as they had to friendly strangers. In the meantime, the emigrants were liberated and permitted to leave the place as they found opportunity. But being robbed of their ship and private property, 
They had to work to support themselves or beg for sustenance. The commandant was furnished by the governor with a small monthly allowance to maintain himself and his family. Amundsen communicated these facts to his superiors in Sweden, but some time necessarily elapsing before the news could be received and aid arrive, his company were grievously afflicted. Being forbidden to celebrate their form of religious worship, many through sickness and necessity, others by promises and force, and some through matrimonial alliances, were converted to the Catholic faith, by which means their lot was somewhat improved. The governor himself procured the baptism of one of the Swedish women and took her to live with him. Soon after, he left the island. Others of the shipwrecked people eagerly sought means to get away, and especially the crew of the Catan, who time and again appealed to La Riva to send them home. Lest their arrival in Sweden in their forlorn plight might discredit the colonial enterprise of the West India Company, the Swedish commandant persuaded them to dispatch Joachim Lick and wait a year for orders or assistance. This they agreed to do, therefore. But the year expiring without news, many finally left the island, one by one, getting home in various ways. Back to me. These were the lucky ones. With La Riva's departure, a new Spanish governor would arrive, Don Diego de la Vera. He was not at all happy there were all these Swedes and Finns on the island, and ordered that they leave on a ship for Cadiz, commanded by General Francisco Visante. The Scandinavians assembled on the beach, but in the event, Vasante insisted he would only take Amundsen and his family. Now back to Springhorn for the final ugliness. You might want to pause the podcast if there are young children in the car with you. Quote, Ba-dum, ba-dum, ba-dum. All right. Amundsen besought that he might stay upon the island if his people might not go with him but he was compelled by menaces to remain on the ship. His children were forcibly detained by the people, that would be the Swedes and Finns, left upon the beach and had to be seized by Spanish soldiers and conveyed on board the vessel, which afterwards, probably April 13, 1651, set sail for Spain, where they arrived the following July. From Cadiz, Amundsen wrote a letter to the Swedish agent at Amsterdam, but this communication never reached its destination. Notwithstanding, he succeeded in getting to that city in a destitute condition, and procuring the needful documents wrote to the Swedish ambassador at Madrid, designing him to speak to the Spanish government and obtain help for the distressed Swedes at Puerto Rico. After the departure of Amundsen, his people petitioned the governor for aid to leave the island and were told they could purchase a little bark that came here a few days before and was taken as a prize. This they did then, and furnished by Laverna with provisions, quitted Puerto Rico May 1st, 1651, numbering no more than 18 souls. Their design was to get to New Sweden, if possible, but the very next day, off St. Croix, they were captured by a frigate, which compelled them to accompany her to that island, then in possession of France. The governor met them with soldiers on the beach who were shouting, women are needed in this country for our men in the fort. That must have been comforting. 
They were immediately taken into custody, robbed of their money and whatever other valuables they could discover. The women, having sewed some of these in their clothes, the governor, by some means finding this out, on their refusal to give them up, had them taken one by one and screwing their fingers with pistol locks until the nails came off, forced them to yield what was concealed, and even went further with his tortures in the hope of getting more. Back to me. The further tortures are described in the Swedish narrative of this catastrophe, the sole survivor among the 18 who left on the bark. Quote, The governor called a soldier and ordered him to take an iron plate and lay it on the fire. And when it was red hot, had the soldiers seize one woman after another and set them on it, crying and screaming with bare feet until their skin was all burnt off. The governor, meanwhile with the rest of his Frenchmen going around, laughing and swilling brandy. Back to Sprinkhorn, quote, The rest were heavily laden with iron fetters and ill-treated, and two of them were killed in a most horrible manner. Finally, they were distributed in various quarters of the island to work, being prohibited to have intercourse with one another, conversation, under penalty of death. In the course of a few weeks, nearly all succumbed to misery and disease. Meanwhile, a Dutch captain, who was sailing in these waters, happened to hear of their misfortunes and contrived to send a boat from St. Christopher's to bring the wretched people away. At the time, there were only five alive. The mate, Johan Johnson Ruth, two women, and two children of whom all but Ruth died, either on the voyage or immediately after their arrival at that island. Ruth, the sole survivor, was brought by the captain spoken of to Holland, where he found opportunity to send a letter to Sweden reciting the events we have narrated. Back to me. The next time you're lounging on the beach at St. Croix, daiquiri in hand, you might take a moment to reflect on the very different conditions that prevailed there in the spring of 1651. Life in the Caribbean some 370 years ago was no bowl of cherries. And before you gripe that this sad tale is a frolic and detour for the podcast, remember that all the ugliness on Puerto Rico and St. Croix happened within the lands of today's United States, so well within our mandate. The fate of the Catton is also important because it may well have sealed the fate of New Sweden. Had his large load of armaments, trading truck, and settlers made it to the Delaware, the Scandinavian position there might have been consolidated. Instead, Prince and his lieutenants must have been demoralized to have heard of its capture in the spring of 1650, even before they knew what had happened to the people. That summer, Prince sent one of his lieutenants back to Sweden to carry his regular report and to convey his request to be released from his position and allowed to return home. It would be three more years. In May 1651, almost exactly as the then 18 survivors of the Catton were leaving Puerto Rico on that bark, Peter Stuyvesant made his first play to push the Swedes out of the Delaware Valley. On May 8th, a Dutch warship appeared at the mouth of the Delaware, interdicting all sailing in either direction. 
By one account, the Swedes, quote, frightened her away, presumably by positioning field pieces to threaten her from shore. Then on June 25th, the Dutch came back, this time with Stuyvesant, 11 vessels of various sizes and perhaps 150 men. He also marched soldiers across the Garden State to reinforce the Dutch garrison at Fort Nassau, which long-standing and attentive listeners will recall was at roughly Gloucester City, New Jersey. Stuyvesant called together the local sachems and played the deed game, obtaining new deeds to much of the region and testimony that they hadn't, in fact, sold the same land to the Swedes. In return, the sachems requested that the Dutch post a gunsmith in the area to fix their firearms as the need arose. It did not occur to Stuyvesant that this might turn out badly. Prince, not tolerating some peg-leg interloping Dutchman outplaying him in the deed game, also convened a bunch of sachems, including a couple who'd met with Stuyvesant, and they solemnly confirmed Swedish ownership. You can't see my scare quotes of the contested lands. Believe me when I say that I am describing only a fraction of these very detailed dealings over land, but a little bit really does go a long way. One suspects there would have been far less of this if Sweden and the Netherlands had not been notional allies in Europe. They weren't actually going to shoot each other, so generating as large a pile of evidence as possible would be useful if the two countries ever negotiated a settlement treetop to treetop across the Atlantic. Stuyvesant wasn't finished. He closed Fort Nassau, which had been on the eastern bank of the Delaware since 1625, and consolidated its men and weapons into a new palisaded fort midway between the Swedish forts of Christina, Wilmington, and Fort Ellsberg, Salem, New Jersey. Stuyvesant's fort, provocative as can be, was at the site of today's Newcastle, Delaware. He named it Fort Casimir. Fort Casimir was located on what was then an island and is now Bull Hill Park, just about two and a half miles south by southwest of the Delmem Bridge. Why the name Casimir, which sounds a lot more Polish than Dutch? Well, Wikipedia to the rescue with this helpful tidbit, quote, Casimir was the name of several Polish kings known for success in battle, as well as the contemporary John Casimir, when the fort was named by Peter Stuyvesant. Historian Joseph Werthval found that one of Stuyvesant's confidants and trusted burghers was Daniel Lisko, a Pole, and Stuyvesant encouraged Polish tradesmen and soldiers to settle in New Netherland. Back to me. Wikipedia and historian Joseph Wertval might have been insufficiently cynical to make an obvious point. In the 158 years between 1563 and 1721, Sweden and Poland would go to war no fewer than 11 times. If Stuyvesant wanted to nettle Prince, which he did, naming his new fort after a Polish king would have been an obvious move. That's my theory, and I'm sticking with it. Prince protested all of this in outraged letters to Stockholm and to Stuyvesant directly, even going so far as to call on him in New Amsterdam. Stuyvesant was unmoved, saying he was acting on orders from the directors of the Dutch West India Company. That was, it turns out, a big fat lie. The company would eventually come around to issuing such an order, but not until Prince's successor had overplayed his hand. 
The years from 1651 to 1653 were difficult ones for both Prince and New Sweden. Because of the catastrophe of the Caton, there'd been no resupply from Sweden since 1647. That meant that European goods were in very short supply. Their shoes wore out, and anything made of cloth became threadbare. The tools broke, and they had nothing to trade to the Indians. The settlers made do, learning to make clothes and moccasins out of deerskin, but Prince wanted to go home more than ever. In the summer of 1652, he wrote to the Swedish chancellor, quote, The Puritans threaten us with violence, and the Dutch are pressing upon us on all sides. They have ruined the fur trade. The savages are troubling us. The people are beginning to desert the colony in despair. Forty Dutch families have settled east of the river, who have absolutely no provisions, and do not sow or plow, designing to live by the traffic with the natives, which they themselves have destroyed. Back to me. The deserting Swedes and Finns were, it turns out, moving to Maryland, and accounting for at least some of the recovery of that colony after the plundering time. Prince's misfortune would be to the benefit of Lord Baltimore. The next year, 1653, would be no better for Prince or New Sweden. At the beginning of that year, Peter Stuyvesant had reinforced Fort Casimir and Dutch families began to settle around it. He made no move against Prince, however, because in 1652, the English and Dutch went to war and the directors had admonished him, quote, not to increase the number of the company's enemies. By now, though, Prince was burned out. His requests to come home to Sweden were now routine and routinely unanswered. In July 1653, he sent his son, Gustavus Prince, one of his lieutenants in New Sweden since 1648, back to Sweden to make his request personally. Prince wasn't quite as ignored as he thought he was. Even as Gustavus Prince was heading home bearing his father's message, the College of Commerce, a new organization authorized by Queen Christina to manage Sweden's frail colonial projects, was preparing a new expedition to the Delaware. The ships were the Golden Shark, which had been the last Swedish ship to actually get to the Delaware in 1646 and 47, and the Ornan, which is the Eagle in English. Amazingly enough, the commander of Ornan was Johann Bockhorn, who had been a mate on the Caton during its catastrophic expedition, and the commander of the Shark was none other than Hans Amundsen. These were men with some combination of courage and offended honor. The College of Commerce charged Amundsen and the Shark to stop by Puerto Rico and seek recompense for the Caton from the Spanish. Before Governor Prince heard that a new supply expedition was on its way from Sweden, he threw in the towel. Having heard nothing for six long years, he found passage on a Dutch ship. Taking his wife and unmarried daughters, the married daughter, Armagut, loved Tenicum Island and in any case had no interest in returning to Sweden and taking up life again with her estranged husband, Prince sailed for Europe in early November 1653, he would arrive in Holland in late winter 1654 and eventually make it to Sweden in April. Prince's timing was not so great. Not only did he cross just as the eagle and the shark were bringing the long-awaited resupply, but they also carried a new assistant governor, 
Johann Klassen Riesing, spelled like the rising sun, but apparently pronounced Riesing. Riesing was no soldier. He was what passed in those days for an economist and an expert on international trade. The director's new prince wanted to leave because they'd met with his son. The appointment of Riesing as assistant governor was, presumably, to establish an orderly succession in the governor's office, as any reasonably well-run corporation would want to do. The College of Commerce appointed Riesing on December 15, 1653, while Prince was sailing east, and gave him detailed instructions. Among them would be to learn what he could from Prince, which obviously would not happen. Best laid plans, etc., etc. The College of Commerce gave Riesing the usual laundry list of instructions about trade and making money and husbandry and such. But the nut of it was that he was to protect New Sweden's sovereignty against the English and the Dutch. As Prinkhorn put it, quote, especially must he seek to rid the place of the Dutch who'd erected a fort there, exercising, however, all possible prudence, and above all, taking care that the English do not obtain a firm foothold. They were also to endeavor to enlarge the limits of the settlement and to try to get all trade on the river out of the hands of foreigners by building, if need be, another fort at the mouth of the Delaware. Back to me. The eagle and the shark took a while to get organized. Curiously enough, just when the prospects of New Sweden were at an ebb, there finally was more demand from potential settlers than space on the ships. More than a hundred families who'd sold everything were told at the dock that they could not come. The two ships did board 350 settlers, including plenty of women and children. On Groundhog Day, 1654, the eagle weighed anchor and worked its way through the ice, then floating in the ocean. Little Ice Age, etc. and so forth. The shark would follow a few weeks later. The voyage started out well. The eagle arrived at the Canaries on March 20th. Sadly, having gone south geographically, the expedition now went south figuratively. The islanders stunned them when they came ashore, and Zorizing sent out a drummer to proclaim peace. This apparently did the trick, and all was well. There being a shortage of good-paying jobs for drummers in 21st century America, and especially Austin, maybe it would be a good idea if we reinvigorated the custom of using them to proclaim peace. Your neighbor's mad because you have an old car on your front lawn? Send a drummer. Anywho, they picked up a nasty pathogen there, and some dread disease spread through the passengers as they sailed west from the Canaries. Then the eagle, with many of its people in dire straits, stumbled on three Turkish ships, which turned to attack. Now back to Pringhorn, quote, Appreciating that in that case, capture signified slavery, all made ready to defend the vessel to the best of their ability. Most of the cannon were so surrounded with luggage as not to be available but everyone was ordered on deck, including the sick, who also bore arms, the weaker of them supporting themselves between comrades who were well. The firing soon began, when the strangers, seeing so many on board, feared to attack the ship and sailed on their way. Back to me, Captain Buckhorn, having lived through the Catan disaster, was not to be fooled twice. 
The Eagle proceeded to the Delaware, but got hammered by a very early and very violent hurricane on May 1st. The storm shattered the masts and so tossed the ship that several people went overboard and drowned. They made it into some unknown bay on the American coast, patched the ship up as well as they could in a few days, and made the Delaware Bay by May 18th. On May 21st, they reached Fort Casimir, and Reising immediately followed his instructions. However beaten up the Eagle was and however sick and exhausted the crew and passengers may have been, he immediately fired off a salute and sent 20 soldiers ashore. After demanding the immediate surrender of the fort and turning down the Dutch commander's request for three days to consider, they pushed through the gate of the palisade. There were only a dozen quite surprised Dutch soldiers who immediately surrendered. Up went the flag of Sweden with no blood shed on either side. After securing the usual oaths from the Dutch soldiers and neighboring settlers, Reising left a garrison at Casimir, which he renamed Fort Trinity, and sailed up to Fort Christina the next day. There he learned that the Swedish and Finnish population had declined to only 70 or so settlers, some by natural causes, but mostly from desertion. They had, after all, been functionally leaderless since Prince's departure six months before. The arrival of 300 new settlers and a boatload of supplies must have been met with mixed emotions, excitement for the relief, leavened with all the practical questions, such as how to feed and house all those people. Reasing almost immediately began a grand tour of the colony, visiting the small settlements distributed mostly along the west bank of the river. He convened a conclave of the local sachems to establish friendly relations and play the deed game. They purported to concede the right of the Swedes to settle those lands. He also entertained a visit from someone representing the governor of Virginia, who offered to buy a chunk of the Swedish lands, which Reasing declined. Finally, he had Fort Trinity rebuilt and armed it with four 14-pounder cannon from the Eagle. He enacted a series of economic reforms he'd negotiated with the College of Commerce, including the right of individuals to trade freely and free of tax. Sounds like an economist. Things were, briefly, looking up in New Sweden. Meanwhile, the Golden Shark was failing in its mission to extract a settlement from the Spanish in Puerto Rico. They did not respond violently, but insisted they could pay nothing without authorization from Spain, which would take, well, most of a year. Then on July 2nd, 1654, while Reising was well along in sorting out the colony, Hans Amundsen, who'd survived Puerto Rico once, died of natural causes and was buried on the island. The new captain, when Henrik Elsvik, sailed north to the Delaware. Sadly, he missed the Delaware Bay and on September 12th sailed smack into New Amsterdam Harbor. Oops. Peter Stuyvesant, who'd heard of the taking of Fort Casimir and was not in the least a happy camper about it, seized the Golden Shark, its crew, and all its stuff. Many of the supplies needed by those 300 new settlers were now in Stuyvesant's warehouse. Now, you might wonder why Stuyvesant had not seized control of New Sweden in the three years since his first raid in 1651. There were two reasons one technical and one military. 
The technical reason was, you will recall, that Stuyvesant enacted without authority in 1651, and the Swedes had raised holy H-E double hockey sticks with the Dutch through diplomatic channels. He did not want to tempt fate with his own masters a second time. The military reason, which was probably more important, was that the English and the Dutch went to war in 1652. He could not risk that the Puritans of the Massachusetts Bay would take up the English cause in North America. They'd already pushed their settlements deep into Dutch territory on Long Island and outnumbered the entire population of New Netherland by at least four or five to one. In addition to building that famous wall and thereby inventing Wall Street literally, if not metaphorically, Stuyvesant had built up his army, adding two or three hundred soldiers, but he could not risk a frolic on the Delaware as long as the English threat remained. Unfortunately for Riesing and the Swedes, the English and the Dutch had made peace and signed a treaty in April 1654, just as the Eagle was sailing into that hurricane. By September, when the shark blundered into New Amsterdam, Stuyvesant knew that he did not have to worry about an attack from the east. There had been, as you might expect, no end of letter writing and protests over the seizure of the golden shark. Captain Elsvik, who was free to wander around Manhattan as long as he didn't leave, would not agree to any of the rough compromises offered by Stuyvesant. At some point, one of his crew beat him up, and the Dutch prosecuted the fellow and sentenced him to a whipping, followed by banishment. After the apparently unpopular Elsvik recovered from his serious injuries, he was released to go to New Sweden on his own, and there he reported into Riesing. The directors of the Dutch West India Company, having been informed of the fall of Fort Casimir and newly emboldened by the peace with England, told Stuyvesant in so many words to fix it. Carl Springhorn describes their instructions, quote, In their letters to Stuyvesant, they incite him to strain every nerve to revenge the outrage suffered, not only by restoring things to their former situation, but even by driving the Swedes from both sides of the Delaware, unless they submitted to the rule of the Dutch company. They promised to send ships and soldiers with plenty of ammunition as speedily as possible, but exhorted Stuyvesant without waiting for these to endeavor to fit out an expedition against the enemy before they should receive reinforcement from the mother country. Back to me. Meanwhile, back in Sweden... The flower and the chivalry were waking up to the importance of having a colony in North America. Queen Christina, the quirky and interesting daughter of Gustavus Adolphus, had abdicated her throne in 1654, just as Riesing was booting out the Dutch and setting things right on the Delaware. Christina had converted to Catholicism and moved to Rome, where she would live another 30 years. Her cousin succeeded her as Charles X, and he took a great interest in New Sweden. Without knowing that the West India Company had ordered Stuyvesant to take over the Delaware, the Swedes prepared a robust 10th expedition, which would sail from Gothenburg in November 1655. That was just a little too late. Having been reinforced to deter the English, Stuyvesant prepared the largest European military expedition in North America since the Soto and Coronada Entradas more than a century before, 
He had seven ships led by the 36-gun wa, meaning scales or balance. The others were smaller and generically referred to as yachts or flyboats. The Holland Garden, Princess Royal, Dolphin, Abraham's Offering, Love and Hope. The historical record is filled with wildly varying estimates of the soldiers and crew on these ships, ranging from 1,500 by Riesing's chief engineer to six to 700 by Riesing himself. Given what would happen, both would be well motivated to overestimate the Dutch force. A better figure comes from a Dutch civilian named Johan Bogart, who may have been an ancient relative of Humphrey Bogart. Johan reported 317 soldiers, in addition to the sailors, which suggests a total complement somewhere between four and five hundred. Riesing had some notice. His Indian allies, maybe Susquehannocks, had learned of the looming attack and ratted out the Dutch, who by this point had alienated most of the Indian groups in the region. Sadly, Riesing was no military man, and he grievously miscalculated by dividing his forces. Riesing believed Stuyvesant was planning only to recover Fort Casimir, so he shifted men, arms, powder, and ammunition from Christina to Fort Trinity Casimir, which was under the command of Sven Skuti. In fact, Stuyvesant now had orders from his directors to seize all of New Sweden. By trying to defend both forts, Riesing ensured that neither fort was able to resist such a large invasion force. Prince probably would not have made that mistake. Stuyvesant and his fleet, with its many guns and hundreds of soldiers, arrived at Fort Casimir on August 31, 1655. Commander Scooty had only 47 men, so he sent a message to Stuyvesant asking to meet. This they did. Stuyvesant was intransigent, but agreed to Scooty's request for a day to think about surrendering. On September 1st, they met again. Scooty reported that he was under orders to hold the fort and that, in any event, he did not believe Stuyvesant would go to war against Sweden by seizing His Majesty's fort. Stuyvesant replied that both the fort and the land belonged to the States General and the West India Company, and he calmly explained to Scooty that if even one Dutchman lost his life in taking the fort, not a single Swede would be spared. If, however, Scooty surrendered the fort, the Swedes would be able to keep their cannon and treat it with all customary honors. Flags flying, drums beating, the Swedes marched out of Fort Casimir and handed the keys to Stuyvesant. The next day, the Dutch fleet sailed for Christina. Stuyvesant had his men occupy high ground in the vicinity of the fort and build gun emplacements. By September 4th, he had Fort Christina essentially surrounded by cannon in four separate batteries. Stuyvesant sent an Indian messenger to Riesing, demanding that the Swedes either vacate the country or swear allegiance to the Dutch. Riesing played for time, saying that he would send a response by special messenger. The Dutch soldiers, whether on orders from Stuyvesant or in spite of them, ran around the countryside plundering Swedish farms, killing livestock, and generally raising the heat on Riesing. Then around September 13th, Stuyvesant received a report from New Amsterdam that put an end to his patience. A fleet of 64 canoes carrying at least 500 Indian soldiers 
landed at New Amsterdam. In the words of C.A. Westlager, Indians began to run riot through the town. That evening, another 200 arrived. The local Dutch organized their militia, and the Indians crossed to Staten Island and Pavonia, roughly Jersey City, and laid waste to the farms there. At least 50 Europeans were killed, and 100 women and children were taken away as captives. The raiding Indians burned thousands of bushels of recently harvested grain and stole or killed more than 500 head of cattle. This attack became known as the Peachtree War because it was allegedly retaliation for the murder of a Muncie woman who was caught stealing peaches from the orchard of a Dutch burger. Historians have speculated, however, that it was orchestrated by the Susquehannocks, who knew that Stuyvesant and his soldiers were away on the Delaware, beating up on the Swedes. Not surprisingly, Stuyvesant needed to settle the siege of Fort Christina quickly so he could hightail it back to Manhattan. On the 14th, he sent one of those drummers to summon Reising with, quote, harsh threats to surrender within 24 hours. Being an economist, Reising no doubt calculated the marginal rate of return on further intransigence, determined it was negative, and the next day gave Stuyvesant a litany of terms for surrender. Riesing's terms began with a stipulation that both he and Stuyvesant were brave and noble. They included the retention of all cannon for the crown of Sweden and the retention of all official documents without them being searched or examined, the freedom of all soldiers and private persons to leave New Sweden unmolested, and that those Swedes who remained and swore allegiance to the Dutch would be permitted to worship Lutheranism. Riesing also asked Stuyvesant for a loan of 300 Flemish pounds to get him and his household back to Europe. The best part was the proposed pomp and circumstance, which merits quoting directly. Governor Johann Riesing his superior and inferior officers, his officials and soldiers, shall march out of the fort with drums and trumpets playing, flags flying, matches burning with hand and sidearms, and balls in their mouths. Back to me, this being a family podcast, will refrain from saying anything more about that. Rising had asked for lots of stuff he probably did not expect to get, but he also didn't know that Stuyvesant was in a hurry. In all likelihood, to Riesing's astonishment, Stuyvesant pretty much just said, very well then, let's get on with it, and gave him everything he asked for. And that was it. New Sweden, as a political jurisdiction, came to an end on September 15th, 1655. Now, briefly, back to Riesing's blunder. If he had known that Stuyvesant would also try to take Fort Christina, he might have concentrated his forces and supplies there. If that in turn had allowed the Swedes to hold out a little longer, or had given Riesing the confidence to turn down Stuyvesant's ultimatum, which may well have been a bluff, the Dutch might have retreated back to Manhattan before kicking the Swedes out. Of course, Stuyvesant would probably have returned once he dealt with the Indian attacks in the area of New Amsterdam, But there's a coda of sorts to the New Sweden story that might have extended the life of the colony if Stuyvesant hadn't extinguished it in September 1655. In the summer of 1655, Sweden resolved to bolster its colony. 
the College of Commerce organized that aforementioned expedition, this time on a ship named Mercurius, or Mercury as we know the name in English. Mercury, the Roman god, had a wide portfolio of responsibilities. He was the god of financial gain, commerce, eloquence, messages, communication, travelers, boundaries, luck, trickery, and thieves. In other words, Mercury is an excellent name for a ship full of settlers. Mercurius loaded up with more than a hundred new settlers, most of them Finns and substantial supplies. She departed Sweden on November 25, 1655, before word of the fall of New Sweden had reached Europe and arrived at the Delaware on March 14, 1656. They would not have been happy to see the Dutch flag flying over the erstwhile forts of Trinity and Christina. The fate of the Mercurius and her passengers is involved, and this episode's already a bit long in the tooth. Suffice it to say that the Dutch wouldn't let the Mercurius unload passengers or proceed up the river to Tenacum Island, where many of the Swedes and Finns had moved and Prince's daughter Armageddon still lived. The Swedes appealed to Stuyvesant to no avail. Suddenly, though, Lenape's soldiers surrounded the ship and attacked it, hoping to loot it for the European goods it carried and threatening to kill everybody in the surrounding area if the ship didn't cooperate. Instead, the captain weighed anchor and sailed upstream on a fair wind, taking refuge at Tinicum. His passengers melted into the population and just became more of the many Swedes and Finns who were now citizens of New Netherland. So what happened to the main characters? Johann Prince had gone back to Sweden in 1653 and would serve as a general in its military and then a regional governor, dying in 1663. His daughter, Armageddon, would live on Tinicum Island for many years. She would make ends meet as an innkeeper, tavern owner, and distiller, and only return to Sweden in 1675, having lived under both the Dutch flag and the English. She would live another 20 years until 1695, but not with her husband. Peter Stuyvesant would serve as the director of New Netherland until it fell to the English in 1666, and thereafter repair to his farm on Manhattan under English rule until his death in 1672. Well, there's now a bow around New Sweden, at least as far as I'm concerned. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast, especially if you made it this far. Your emails have been very encouraging. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. And please do me the great favor of giving the podcast a five-star rating on Apple, maybe writing a review, and following me on X and the Facebook page for the podcast. Until next time.